0: Um, the topic local church and missionary training so I have uh, my background is uh, in uh, missions and in training missionaries uh, my family and I lived for I think many of you I know in here a few of you I know in here but my family and I lived in East Africa for 11 years and then Turkey and China for four years uh, and then we've been down uh, in Mexico I direct the training program at Radius International. We have uh, about 60 or 70 students each year, and they are training to go to what we call unreached language groups. So you may be familiar with the idea of unreached people groups, um, 2% or less Christian in a particular nation or under, in a particular group of people that have the same culture and language. Uh, you may be familiar with unengaged unreached people group. So if you picture a unreached people group represented by that circle, you have cross-cultural workers or missionaries going into these unreached people groups. Some of them have no workers, no missionaries. Okay? So just because a, a people group is unreached doesn't mean there aren't people trying to reach that people group, okay? Well, there's a subset that, uh, at, that no one that we know of is trying to reach them. It represents about 3,000 uh, people groups on the planet today, most of them small, probably about 350 million uh, people scattered across 3,000 unreached uh, people groups. Uh, We call them unreached language groups just to distinguish from unreached people groups, but these would be distinct languages, uh, minority languages. So most of our students are expecting to learn two languages, a majority language like Arabic or like Mandarin uh, or like uh, uh, Hindi, uh, and then a minority language. Uh, And oftentimes those minority languages uh, don't have uh, alphabets, Um, not widely spoken, no language schools, and so there's a unique kind of training that's required uh, for that. So that's what I do now. I direct that program, and uh, we've got probably about 250 graduates or so. We're about 10 years old. and um, So I want to talk to you today about the local church and missionary training. Uh, At Radius, where we're at, we see ourselves as servants to the local church. We don't send anyone, we're not an agency, uh, we receive people from the local church, we train them for the local church, and then the local church sends them out. Um, and we are not a, a a I would say, a full service training organization, in other words, we don't train in everything that someone will need for cross-cultural work. Uh, we would see ourselves more as like a finishing school. Uh, so Um, There's lots of things that a cross-cultural worker or missionary needs when he goes into, uh, takes up the task to plant churches among unreached language groups. Uh, And we provide just a very small, narrow slice of that. So we depend on local churches to provide or to see to it that uh, a larger slice of that training is provided, so let 's kind of talk about that i 'm operating from the perspective that uh, the great Com- the great Commission is uh, church planting that jesus Jesus expected um, that his disciples would uh, Proclaim the gospel, make disciples, and gather those disciples into local assemblies of believers. He said that he would build his church, and he told his disciples how to do that in uh, Matthew chapter 28. So it's given to the church, and we see Acts 13, the uh, church there at Antioch, uh, observing and commissioning uh, Paul and Barnabas and others to accomplish the task. So that's that's the perspective that I'm coming from, that it's not... Uh, the mission agency that sends workers. Um, it's not a training agency like us, it's the church. And so what's the relationship then between the church and uh, missionary training? And I've identified, I think, four kind of four areas here that uh, the missionary needs to be training, trained in, and from my perspective, and then I'll make I'm going to make comments about. The, the relationship of the local church to those elements of the training. Okay, so four elements, four areas of training, and then how the local church relates to those areas of training and can, how the local church can strengthen uh, those areas of training. Okay, so if you have questions along the way, uh, please feel free uh, to stop, stop me. Okay, so number one there, theological training equips the missionary with the biblical knowledge and skills necessary to plant reproducing churches in different cultural contexts. So what I'm saying here is theological training is necessary, some level of theological training. uh, Missionaries have to have a robust knowledge of the scripture and an ability to communicate the scripture. Okay? We expect that the result of mission work would be uh, gatherings of believers who are able to uh, provide shepherds for themselves, who are able to carry out the one another ministries within that body, who are able then to uh, communicate the gospel clearly in their uh, in their language and in their context, and ultimately who are able to to send workers from them uh, to plant. New churches, and uh, what I'm saying here is theological training of the missionary is necessary for that. There's often an assumption that, you know, we we pastors need to get a, whatever the degree is, a master's, an MDiv, a ThM, a whatever. Pastors have this high level of education that they need, but missionaries don't need to have that high level of education. I may push back against a little bit of that. Uh, if anyone needs to have a high, robust level of biblical education. It should be someone who is going into a new cultural context, into a people who have no, no uh, biblical worldview in mind, okay? who have strongholds, who have idols, uh, who have crafted uh, systems that set themselves up against the knowledge of Christ, and uh, you need to know your Bible well because when you step into that context, there's going to be all kinds of opposition and you're going to have to lay the kind of framework and foundation that you may not have to lay in a place uh, in an already established uh, church, for example. So we can just real quickly look at a couple uh, passages here. Uh, let's go to Second Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1. You know that essentially we could say that Paul trained Timothy to be a missionary. Right? Would we all agree with that? Paul trained Timothy to be a missionary. Uh, Timothy traveled along with Paul on his missionary journeys. Uh, Paul entrusted Timothy with responsibilities along the way, left him places to continue establishing a healthy, robust church. And near the end of his life, it seems that, uh, uh, near the end of Paul's life, it seems that Timothy uh, was in Ephesus. And Paul, there in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, gives us a window into the relationship that he had with Timothy. I'll just read in verse 13 here 2 Timothy 1.13 What you have heard from me. Keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. So what's lying underneath this, this verse?? Okay? If he's supposed to keep a pattern of sound teaching, and uh, he said, "What you've heard from me, okay, keep this pattern of sound teaching. In other words, in other words, uh, Timothy is supposed to uh, continue teaching as Paul taught, that there's this pattern of sound teaching in the next, past, next verse, he, said, he calls this a deposit that was entrusted to you. So, uh, for our purposes here, we see that Paul had handed to Timothy uh, this uh, message, sound doctrine. Timothy must have had the ability to put together the scriptures, to be able to understand the scriptures, and to communicate those scriptures. And Timothy was supposed to guard that, protect that, what he had received. Okay, So, part of Paul's missionary training of Timothy was to instruct him in sound doctrine and to encourage him to protect that sound doctrine. Okay, you with me there? Let's move forward a couple chapters to uh, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. Again, in verse 10, Paul reflects back on his teaching of Timothy. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Now, um, my focus here is theological training, but notice how much more is involved uh, than theological training. We'll get to some of that Timothy observed many things about Paul's life, not just his teaching, but his purpose, his faith, his patience, uh, and so forth. And let me continue in verse 12 then. In fact, uh, well, I was in the middle of 11. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them, all of those persecutions that he experienced. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from, who you learned, from whom you learned it. Paul, uh, in particular, but more than just Paul, uh, at least his, uh, from some of his family and from and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which you are which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then the famous verses that we know that show the usefulness of Scriptures. All Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that, that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul reminds Timothy of his teaching. He encourages him to continue in the things that that he has learned. He reminds him that you've known the Scriptures for a long period of time. And then kind of gives us that window that the Scripture is profitable for those particular teaching, instruction, rebuke, and so forth, so that uh, that, uh, God's people uh, might be equipped to serve him. So this um, expectation and assumption is that... uh, that the worker, Timothy, has a thick knowledge of the scripture. Paul has consistently, over a long period of time, instructed Timothy uh, in the word so that he could then uh, communicate the word. And then in Acts chapter 20, let's go there very briefly. I don't think I have to spend a whole lot of time in this particular first point for this audience. (laughs) Uh, That... Uh, Cross-cultural workers, missionaries, need a robust knowledge of the Scripture. But let's look at Paul in Ephesus. You know, this is where he is uh, reflecting on his time with the Ephesians. This is a bit after his time of ministry there. He had gathered the elders uh, down south of Ephesus in Miletus. And he's reminding them of his life with them. And he says in verse 20, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul identifies his responsibility as communicating uh, God's Word publicly, privately, in a way that would be helpful to them. okay. And the core of that would be the gospel. And then if we uh, move down to verse 27, again he says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Or the whole plan of God, uh, the whole purpose of God. In other words, as as these Ephesian elders and all of the Ephesian believers uh, functioned within their worldview, their system, God, uh, Paul came and explained and, and, and contrasted the purpose of God with their worldview and laid that entire purpose of God out for them. Okay? That takes a knowledge, a knowledge of uh, the truth, a knowledge of God's word. So you have um, theological training as foundational uh, for, uh, for the minister. A lot of wisdom is needed, a lot of biblical knowledge and wisdom as the cross-cultural worker enters into that new context and uh, proclaims the gospel and disciples new believers in the same context. Now, I'm going to come back to some of this in a little bit. But for now, um, theological training is a necessary component. And let me just connect that to the church now. Because that's what this session is about, the local church and missionary training. Whose responsibility is it to ensure that those whom they lay hands on, the church lays hands on workers and sends them into the nations, whose responsibility would it be to ensure that their theological knowledge is sufficient for the task? Well, I think we would all agree it would be the church's responsibility, not the seminary's responsibility, not the missionary training responsibility. It's the church's responsibility. And I think some of the developments that we've seen um, in the last 10, 20 years, like like, uh, internships, pastoral internships, uh, that are more than just photocopy this paper or manage these children's programs, but actually part of... um, the life of the church, part of the construction of sermons and evaluation of sermons and discussion about the sheep and how the sheep are doing, all of that is part of the theological training, uh, the Bible training that is necessary for workers. So it's the church's responsibility. We've done that, I think, I think we've done that well with pastors, but maybe we haven't done that quite as well with missionaries. Like we, we tend to think of missions as a as a se- kind of a separate program of the church. Okay? And there's other people that are responsible for, for that, uh, not really us, we're not really, but, but the church is actually responsible for that, and we're responsible for the theological training as we send workers. And that's one of the things that we've noticed Like at, where I'm at now, is we receive um, potential workers, and we're supposed to train them, and we have an expectation that they come in with sufficient Bible knowledge, to do the task, because we're a finishing school. I'll I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. But we're a finishing school. We're not a Bible school. Students are expected to come in with Bible. And the level of Bible knowledge that that students have, I'm talking about 25 to 35-year-old individuals here, not 18 to 24-year-olds, is very, very low. In fact, the other day, uh, a student was giving a presentation in the, in the context of a larger class on um, the gospel and narrative context. So, putting the facts of the gospel in the overall picture of God's story. And uh, their story for this particular team, if I remember correctly, was uh, about the kings, David and Solomon, and uh, the fact that David wanted to build a temple, and Solomon ended up building the temple. And Uh, I was working with the team beforehand and they had never heard of the covenants. I mean, never heard of the covenants before. And how the uh, covenant with um, Abraham and the covenant with uh, uh, Moses and Israel and the covenant with David, how they all fit together. Never even heard of them. Um, And I was actually quite surprised. That here's someone who's finishing their preparation to go to the field, and they're not even familiar with their Old Testament and how it fits together. So the church is responsible for theological training. Um, um, Paul knew his scripture well. Paul passed that on to Timothy and to Titus and to others and expected them to know the scripture well as they entered into cross-cultural context. So second thing. Culture and language acquisition training prepares the missionary to learn the new language and culture in a way that enables him to speak at a worldview level fluency. Okay, now there's a lot there, and I'll unpack that for you. You should expect your workers, when they leave... I'm assuming, I mean, we're, this is local church and missionary training, so I'm s- assuming I'm speaking to people who are part of local churches and wondering what is their responsibility in relation to missionaries that they send out. Okay? You should be aware of the process of culture and language learning, and you should have an expectation, in my opinion, of the people you send out to be able to reach an adult-level fluency. Now think about it for a second. Um, is, a, could I, is a six-year-old fluent in English? I got a six-year-old <laughs> 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 Yeah, some of them. But, I mean, How about a ten-year-old? We don't even know what fluency is. You see, do we? We're, we're just like, well, yeah. A five-year-old—you could say, in some senses, a five-year-old is fluent. They know enough enough English to get around to communicate what they need. A ten-year-old is fluent, but would you want a five-year-old standing up in the pulpit? Even if even if the five-year-old knew the scriptures thoroughly, there's just something about a five-year-old's language that's limited, right? There's limits to that. Um, same with a ten-year-old. 10-year-olds, even if the knowledge was where it needed to be, just the skill in communicating even, the nuances of how adults communicate to each other. So the expectation should be adult-level fluency, and a lack of clarity in what fluency is actually hinders, in my opinion, uh, hinders the relationship between local churches and missionaries. When I was first in East Africa and people would come visit me, um, Wow, you're so fluent. Well, and I knew that I could barely get around, but for someone who doesn't speak the language, listening to someone who is now learning the language, it sounds much better. Like, they're, they're, my, my language ability sounded much better than it actually was. So you have an expectation for adult-level fluency. Why? I would say that adult-level fluency leads to access credibility, and, cl- and clarity. Access, credibility, and clarity. Um, if, you, if you are able to speak as an adult, that's going to give you opportunity to talk with adults. Like if you're just out in the community and you speak like a five-year-old or a ten-year-old, and I know a lot of missionaries who say, well, I'm fluent, and their language ability is actually more like a 5-year-old or a 10-year-old. Okay? But if you're speaking like a, an adult, that's going to give you access to people. In other words, you're going to be able to continue conversations. You might be able to talk as a 5-year-old to a, a 45-year-old Muslim man for five minutes but it's not going to go much longer than that. Or if it does, it's never going to get to the kind of topics that you need to get to. Or if it does, it's going to just be him smiling and looking at you and th- thinking, well, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. See, Josh, Josh is back there smiling. He speaks Mandarin at a high level. Um, so it, it leads to access. But it also leads to credibility. Like, um, Have you ever had an instructor who doesn't know what they're talking about? I mean, we all have. I mean, and, and those of us who have instructed, we've all entered into areas and spaces that we don't feel very comfortable in when we're standing up in front of people talking, right? And we know what that feels like. And if you are an expert in a particular area, your own culture, and someone's talking to you, and, and they're not very aware or their language ability is not very high, right? The, their credibility in your eyes is going to go down, and therefore the value of their message is also going to go down. Okay? So it leads to access, credibility, and then clarity. Clarity. If you can't structure arguments in ways that local people structure arguments, or if you can't illustrate, like illustrations are a big part of how we communicate, This is like this. If you can't do that, then you're going to be less than clear in communicating. So adult level fluency leads to access, credibility, and clarity. Paul said in Colossians chapter 4, pray for me that I might proclaim the gospel clearly as I should. Like That's just an expectation that we have of gospel communicators, that they make it clear. Okay, and we, when we talk about that, we generally talk about the content of the gospel. But I, I think there is an application to actually the construction of human language in that as well. That, that's directly connected to gospel clarity. Letter A there, good language acquisition training includes phonetics and methods that leads to in-context language learning as well as familiarity with proficiency scales. So what am I saying there? Before workers go to the field, they need to know how to learn a language. Now, I would guess that most of you have had a French or a German class or a Spanish class in high school. Can you speak it? No. That's not how human beings learn languages so that they can speak them. Okay. You don't know how to learn a language if you took French or German or Spanish in high school. You just you just don't. You know how to sit in the classroom and receive instruction from a teacher and mimic that, but you don't know how to learn a language in order to actually use it. So you need to be trained in, in ways and in methods. That's why I say they are methods that lead to in-context language learning. What do I mean by that? Okay? If you guys are Mandarin speakers, I need to learn how to learn the language among you, not apart from you in a classroom. Now, you can, you can study in a classroom. That can be helpful to learn grammar and structure and all of that. And I'm not saying that in, when, I, when I talk about in-context. I'm not talking about just walking out and expecting to know it. There's structure to that. But you need to learn methods. Um, You need to have a framework. You need to have a plan. You need to have structure. You need to have step one, step two, step three um, that you can work through. And then you need to have ways to measure. That's why I say there the familiarity with proficiency scales. How do you know if you're fluent? Like I said, we we have very loosey definitions of fluency. If you want to write down there uh, ACTFL, it's an acronym for... American Council of Teaching Foreign Languages, maybe? I just made that up, but it sounds good, so I'll go with it. ACT, I think it is. (laughs) ACTFL, proficiency scales. Just Google that sometime. And what you'll see is uh, like a funnel. And at the bottom of the funnel, you have novice. Then you have intermediate. Then you have advanced and superior and distinguished, okay? So novice, intermediate, advanced, superior, distinguished. Each one of those first three, novice, intermediate, and advanced, have three sublevels, low, mid, and high, okay? So very um, kind of logical, right? Um, Low, mid, high. There are ways... Uh, to evaluate where you fall on that scale. So if you're learning a majority language or a common language like Mandarin or Swahili or Turkish, you can contact uh, a company and hire them to do a phone interview of you. And what comes out of that phone interview is uh, placement on that scale. Okay. So where this should be important, in my opinion, for the local church is before your worker goes, you need, to le- you need to agree where on that scale the worker should land. Well, how do you know where the worker should land? Well, you can, you can look at those scales, and those scales will have descriptions of what qualifies for that level. So read those and determine where should someone land in order to preach the gospel clearly? What kind of language is necessary to communicate the gospel clearly? You can look at that. My, I would land somewhere between advanced low and advanced high, depending on the language, circumstances, and all of that, uh, in terms of where I think someone should land to be able to communicate the gospel clearly. Getting to superior and distinguish is almost impossible for a non-native speaker. Possible, but almost impossible. Okay, so um, that that is a very hard metric, a clear metric. Uh, it's an achievable metric, and as a pastor or as a church leader, you can interact with your worker and 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 say, okay, where are you on that in that process? Are you at advanced? Are you at uh, novice high? Great. If you want to even get more detailed and structured about it, you can work with them to lay out a plan to get from novice to advanced. Uh, okay, let's see. First three months, I'm going to go from novice uh, low to novice mid. And then three more months, I'm going to go from novice mid to novice high. And then six months, I'm going to go from novice, uh, novice high to intermediate low um, and so forth. You can just lay that out. And then you can interact with them along the way. So where are you? Uh, you, you? They can do self-evaluations or you can pay, I think it's about 200 bucks, which is not a big deal, to have uh, a professional evaluation. Okay. If they get to uh, three months and they're still not at nov- whatever it is, then what do you do? What do you do at that point? Yeah, exactly. You're going to have to reevaluate. Something's not right. Either their initial assumption about where they should be at this point is wrong, or something's wrong with their language learning program, or something unexpected has happened uh, in their adjustment process, there, there's lots of ors. There's lots of things that could be happening. Okay. Now, you as a, as a um, local church pastor or church leader may not have the skills or background to tinker around with that and, and find out what's wrong with it. Well, that's where you get on the phone and talk with uh, an agency if the worker is with an agency. You'd be surprised. I've been very surprised as I've entered into the training world and seen our workers go out how, how little agencies actually test language proficiency and how much they, they trust the worker's own self-evaluation of where they're at. And it's just, well, I'm fluent. I'm fluent. Um, There has to be more than that. The gospel is way more important than someone just saying, hey, I'm fluent. You've got a responsibility to make the gospel clear. And so you need to work hard at that language. And learning a language is harder. Learning a second language, for me, maybe Josh can disagree with me or agree with me, was way harder than any academic pursuit that I ever had. Um, It was just way harder. It was always there. uh, And it just hammered me. Um, so having that outside accountability is good and helpful. Okay? So language learning, scale, um, help them chart out, okay, here's where I'm going, here's how I'm going to get there, and then check in with them. Okay? This is how a local church can help, check in with them. And if they're not where they need to be, find some help to help them get help, to either get back on track or to make an adjustment in the track. Okay, so language acquisition training. I haven't said anything about phonetics, but um, we all prefer listening to someone who pronounces things the way we pronounce them, right? If you ever have a foreign speaker come in, you really have to engage at times if their accent is really thick. You really have to listen, and sometimes you don't get everything that they say. And if you don't get something that's like, one part that's really important, you might misunderstand the entire message. What phonetics does is phonetics teaches you to control this apparatus, this whole thing here, the mouth, the tongue, uh, the throat, to pronounce different sounds or a wide range of sounds, all the sounds that the human mouth can pronounce, or at least the majority of them. Okay? And so what a phonetics class will do is it'll, it'll show you where your tongue is, in your back or your mouth, or you know, to make different sounds, so that when you get to the next context, you can hear that. Okay, you can hear that and know what to do with this. Now, it doesn't mean it's easy, right? Because to put your tongue in a place that your tongue normally doesn't go when you speak English is hard to discipline it. But if you practice, if you practice, eventually, the tongue does what you want it to do without you thinking of it. Do you put it in the front of your teeth or the back of your teeth or do you put it in the back of your mouth? Well, you don't don't consciously think about that with English. And if you can can just hear the difference but you don't know how to control this, then it's going to take you a lot longer to make that sound because you don't know how to control this. So, phonetics can be helpful in that process as well. All right, good culture acquisition. Uh, training includes ethnographic research that leads to the ability to make lifestyle adjustments and develop contextualized teaching materials. Okay, ethnographic research is simply um, observing what's going on around you, noticing the differences, and then inquiring about those differences. It can be as simple as when you walk into a room, uh, you kiss someone on this cheek and then this cheek. Well, that's different than the way we do it in America. So you notice that difference. You observe it, and then later you ask questions about it. Okay? So what does that mean? Now, I noticed that um, when a 40-year-old man walked in, he would kiss uh, the, the uh, 60-year-old woman but he would not kiss the 40-year-old woman, right? So you you notice those differences, and you have to notice patterns, and then you you begin to ask why. Now, why questions are hard to ask, actually. You have to find unique ways to ask those questions, and this is not a session about ethnographic research, okay? But you need to have tools. Your worker that you send out needs to have some tools in their toolbox that they can observe and ask the right kinds of questions that leads them to conclusions. Why? Why? Well, a couple reasons. Two reasons primarily. You need to walk into a room and kiss a 60-year-old woman, but not a 40-year-old woman. Right? You need to make lifestyle adjustments that fit within that culture. Okay? Paul said, I'm, I, I become all things to all men that I might by all means win some. Okay? At least one application of that passage is, relates to the kind of adjustments that a cross-cultural worker will make when they go from one place to another. Hospitality, okay? Um, In America, we will send someone an invitation. We'll call them, we'll text them, we'll ask them to come over to our house, and there are certain rules, unspoken rules, about how that interaction works. Now, uh, Josh, you're smiling. Would you invite a Chinese friend, or at least many of your Chinese friends, would you invite to your home in the same way? Not the same way. Not the same way, no. More frequently, you you would invite them to a restaurant. Okay? And there'd be a table, and that table would be uh, s- uh, situated in a certain way, and you'd have to sit in a certain place, and you'd make the order, not them, and you'd share the food instead of using it individually. So there's lots of rules with that. Okay? Now, why is that important? Well, again, it relates to access and credibility. Right? You want to be as credible as you possibly can, and think about it from this perspective. Um, we're supposed to love our neighbor, right? We're supposed to love our neighbor. Um, there are a variety of ways in which you demonstrate love for your neighbor. Okay? If, if you um, enter into a room and you don't kiss the 60-year-old woman like you're supposed to, are you communicating love? You're communicating probably the opposite, actually, uh, that there's something wrong in this relationship. Okay? So a lot about these lifestyle adjustments relates to showing love to neighbors, But more importantly than that, ethnographic research leads to contextualized teaching materials. And so I'll just give you a, a quick example of what I mean here. Um, when I first went to Africa and started uh, sharing the gospel with people, I'm going to talk about sin and salvation, right? That's part of the gospel message, sin and salvation. Well, I was not aware that uh, their expectation in life was to manipulate the unseen spirit world because the unseen spirit world is causing all of the problems that they're facing. So their ideal life is successful manipulation of the spirit world so that they... um, They're not thinking about the afterlife so that they have a good life on this planet, which would include maybe a tin roof instead of a grass roof. It would include education for their kids. It would include maybe two wives or three wives and enough food to provide for all of them. It would include cows that didn't get sick and die, It would include all these things. Okay? So they would hear the word salvation and Jesus will save you. They might not hear the from your sins part or they might import a different meaning. And they're thinking, well, Jesus is just a better witch doctor. That's who Jesus is. Their categories or their worldview isn't challenged or, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, demolished, gently, hopefully, (laughs) directly, Um, but their worldview is left intact and they're just bringing in these Western theological terms. And now Jesus is a better witch doctor who will save them from their sins, and the result of being saved is I'm not going to get sick anymore, or when I do get sick I just have to pray now instead of going to the witch doctor and everything's going to be all right. There's no understanding of what actually sin is and what Jesus is actually saving us from. Okay? So um, early on in my time there, that was a blind spot for me. And man, people would come to Christ and then they would be gone. That's because they weren't actually followers of Jesus. Because I didn't understand the culture clearly enough to expose that wrong thinking. Okay? Part of, part of uh, Paul and Timothy and all pastors' responsibility is to expose error, Titus 1.9. Refute those who are in error. Okay? So uh, good, good um, pre-field training has to include language and culture acquisition uh, tools. You got any questions or thoughts on that up to this point? So if you, as a local church, if you're aware of even something as simple as this language scale and the fact that there's something called ethnographic research out there, you can have conversations with your workers and see how they're doing on these things and keep them accountable. All right, church planting training orients the missionary to biblical and practical elements of planting a new church. I love the book of Titus. Titus is a church planting document. It's a great church planting document. Paul left Titus in Crete to finish the work that he began, and the first thing that he did in finishing that work was uh, appointing elders. So he tells us something about what elders are to be like, heavy on character, by the way. Uh, and then he goes on and talks about the various groups within, uh, within um, uh, the, the, the church there at Crete. Uh, I think at the end of chapter 1, he starts talking a lot about false teaching and how he's supposed to uh, oppose that false teaching. Um, and then uh, chapter 3, he's talking a lot about how you live as a believer in a fallen world. Okay, so church planting training helps the missionary um, begin to understand what's involved in seeing a healthy church established. So letter A, very basic. Good church planting training should provide a clear biblical definition of the church. Remember I said earlier that one of the good things about the development of pastoral training are things like internships? Um, One of the things that comes out of that is a clear vision of what the church is. Now the, the challenge... A challenge with doing that, doing like an internship in your home church before you go overseas to a a cross-cultural context is you have to have a really sharp vision of what the church actually is and what it's not. In other words, um, the church is not pews with a raised platform and stained glass and programs that function efficiently. That's not the church. Those are tools that serves the church. And there's flexibility with things like what I just mentioned there. Families sit together or families don't sit together. Um, Graded Sunday school classes. Um, There's all kinds of programs and structures and things that we have in our churches in the U.S. that aren't necessary components of the church. Okay? So a clear biblical definition of the church. And one of the reasons is going to be pressures in contextualization that are unhealthy. Okay? What I mean is, um, you know, having, having recognized leaders, uh, that's kind of Western. There's going to be pressures in contextualization that say you don't need to have recognized leaders. Well, that's a biblical issue, right? Yes, you do need to have recognized leaders. So you have to have this clear definition of what a church is. And then also uh, good church planning training should include instruction on contextualization in evangelism, discipleship and leadership training. Um, good, Good I don't know what you guys know about contextualization, but sometimes people think of contextualization as making the gospel more palatable or acceptable. That's not at all what contextualization is. Contextualization actually actually makes the offense of the gospel more clear, more acute. That's what good contextualization does, right? Like my example in, in East Africa, of me not making the gospel clear because I wasn't uncovering their view of the spirit world and then exposing that as damning. Good contextualization does that. Jesus doesn't just enter into this worldview um, and give you what you want. Here's the Bible's answers to the questions of life that you're asking but you've come up with the wrong answer for. So it makes uh, makes the uh, the the sting of the gospel more um, more acute. Um, Van Til defines apologetics as the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of non-Christian philosophy of life. You are, in a sense, an apologist when you enter into a new uh, context. You are exposing that error. You are showing the accuracy of the biblical worldview over against the error of this one. So if you're going to plant a church, you you have to have tools and methods to be able to understand and then take the scriptures and address that. Let me talk about the fourth one here and then we'll be done, and that's character development. Character development prepares the missionary to persevere with integrity in a high pressured and often lonely environment. Um, leaving, leaving everything that you're familiar with, and entering into, an Um, an environment in which, at the very least, the evil one does not want you there, at the very least, (laughs) okay, Um, where you're learning an entire new way of life, uh, new language, new customs, new functioning of the home, new everything. It hammers you. The pressure is intense, If you're going to persevere in that, you need to have a high level of uh, discipline, a high level of, um, um, well, let's say it this way. You're, you have to have a, a strong knowledge of the Scripture that shapes and informs your character and gives you the strength to keep going even when um, it is very unpleasant very unpleasant, very hard, uh, and often, often lonely, as I say there. So how do you, um, what do you do um, with that before you go? I'm try- At this point, I'm trying not to enter into my next session, which is the missionary and uh, the local church and missionary care. I'm talking about training here. So I, I can say it this way. You need to know your uh, worker, your missionary, well before they go. You need to be invested in them before they go. You need to be aware of how they're doing in their marriage or their singleness. You need to be aware of how they're doing in their parenting. You need to be investing biblically in them because they're going to be removed from that and they're going to be on their own in a lot of ways. Okay, so you need to be building and strengthening their character, their resolve, their competency in the Scripture rather than just saying, well, they're not pastors. They're missionaries. Their agency does that. Their agency doesn't actually do a lot of that. You know, average, average training from agencies may be two to three weeks twice. That's the average training for mission mission agencies today. You know how much character you build in two to three weeks? (laughs) Very, very little. Very, very little. So I guess my encouragement would be um, disciple. That's what character development is, isn't it? It's discipleship. Disciple those people who you are preparing to send in the basics of Christian living and in their marriages and in their parenting and all of these things, um, and observe that. Observe them in high-pressured situations. Um, if you're not engaged with them, you're not going to be able to observe those things. And then shepherd them. You know, If they're, if they're trying to navigate... A, a seminary load or some sort of Bible training load and a employment mode and they're they're just having children um, engage in their lives and help them um, w- what is discipleship and character development it's it's bringing the truth of the scripture to life's current situation in a way that gives understanding and encourages perseverance in obedience right um, and so be involved in that all right so those are the four areas uh, that I wanted to uh, look at when we talk about um, missionary training in the local church okay so whatever your role is in your local church as it relates to missionary training uh, theological instruction is. Necessary. Um, uh, language acquisition, cultural instruction is necessary. Church planting instruction is necessary, and character development. All of those things are components of missionary training. Now, a place like Radius fits in probably on number two there, the culture and language part. That's where we fit in. Okay? Now there's a lot of character development too because we create we create pressure environments, and we're in a cross-cultural situation, so we get to help shepherd them through that, and we interact with local churches uh, as well. So you need to think about where your uh, workers are getting these elements as you send them out.